in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can come together as your people on this, your day, and sit at your feet and be fed from your word that which is life-transforming. And we pray that it would be so for us this day and that we would read it, mark it, learn it, nibbly digest it, all for your glory. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. When Kim and I were engaged and we were attending Truro Church in Fairfax, Virginia, uh, our first ministry together were as Sunday school teachers for the third graders at the 930 service. And so, I don't know why it was, but we always got the minister's kids. And they knew more Bible than we did at that time. You know, it was pretty intimidating to have Jessica Howe. John Howe's daughter, Katie Labar, Neil Labar's daughter, who became the bishop in the ACNA, um, and Tim Chapman, who was Jeff and Becca Chapman. Je- many of you know Jeff. He, uh, he served the rector of St. Stephen's and was a good friend to Kim and I when I was in seminary. It was intimidating, but we learned real quickly that there's no way to learn the Bible as best as when you're teaching it. So we, we taught these kids, and it was great. But chapel, uh, Sunday school always began in the chapel with a kind of a sing-along. We sang all those great gospel children Bible songs. This little light of mine, right? You know, Jesus loves me, yes I know. Keep me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. You know, you, you guys, these, these are great. They're great. We're going to bring them back, you know. Um, they're wonderful songs to sing. But I got to tell you, one of my favorites was, and we only sang it once or twice a year was all God's children got a place in the choir. I think they got it from the Gaithers or somewhere. It's kind of gospel sounding. You know, many of you go, huh, what? All God's children's got a place in the choir. Some sing low or some sing higher. Some sing out loud on the telephone wire. Some just clap their hands. <laughs> you got to listen to the bass, the one on the bottom is the bullfrog croaks and the hippopotamus moans and groans with a big to-do. The old cow just says moo. You know, the kids loved it. We'd be clapping, you know, on the afterbeat properly. All God's children got placed in the choir. Some sing low. You get 50 kids doing that. That's a celebration. It was marvelous. Every creature in God's ecosystem has a purpose for living. And every child of God, according to this scripture we've heard Catherine read for us today, has a purpose within God's church. And yet... Because the American church doesn't act like this, therefore it does beg the question, do they even believe it? Because just this week on Moody Radio, Kim and I heard it, the number one reason why Americans don't believe it is because the church professes something with their lips and they go out and they live like everybody else. Last week we learned that the essential characteristics of the church are, remember, okay, learning, we're in the Word of God individually and corporately, right? Fellowshipping, loving, doing life together, worshiping both personally and corporately, setting aside Sunday as the highlight of our week. We know there's instances that perhaps you can't be here, but really, 50% or less, you know? 
praying, that we're people of prayer, both individually and corporately as we come together. No wonder, as opposed to the ancient church, they were doing, they were living this way. It was just a lifestyle of how they live. It's just who they are. The Lord added to their number day by day. Is that happening today? Doesn't seem like it. But yet we heard in Peter's confession today, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that confession, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're in a sermon series on the church in you. Especially important as we're transitioning eventually, God willing, in a couple of months to our new building. Uh, we have to m- remind ourselves constantly that the church is not a building. Because I've had some of you have come to me and said, oh, when we get a building, we're just going to bust out. It's going to grow like gangbusters. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Bishop has closed seven churches this year who built a building and put a shingle up and said, come and see. <laughs> All right? No, it's a contagious people who are learning, loving, worshiping, praying, and the Lord, God willing, will add people day by day, those who are being saved. With that in mind, we take it one step further, and what we realize today in the passage read in 1 Corinthians is Paul's reminding us that each and every one of us matter in the kingdom of God. Paul uses this wonderful metaphor of the human body in 1 Corinthians 12, and I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to this. He he, he builds his case for the beauty of the church, and it's not about a building. It's a body. Notice in verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The church does not function as a collection of separate individuals. The church does not even function like a democracy. There is never a 51% to a 49% victory in the church. It does not split up according to party lines. It is far more vitally connected than that. The church functions as a body. So consider your own body. All right. When you stub your toe, your whole body reacts. Your legs react. You bend your knee. You grab your foot. Your mouth cringes. You let out a huge yell that says, ow! Your eye darts to see what you stubbed your toe on. The entire body is seamlessly and organically woven together. There are no individual decisions to be made. The body reacts as a whole unit. It's not as though certain members of the body decide to opt out when they don't feel like helping. And yet the body exhibits great diversity. Toes are not like ears. The tongue is not like a heel. Their diversity is not a hindrance to the body, but it's absolutely necessary for it. The body could not function as it does if it was made up of 100 eyeballs. Or a hundred years. Paul wants the church to understand, to see themselves as integrally tied to one another, like the various members of the human body. 
So he talks about the beauty of interdependence. There's four aspects of our interdependence that Paul is showing us here. The first aspects of the beauty of interdependence, number one, is grounded in each member's indispensability. Verse 21 tells us, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. It is almost ridiculous to consider members of the body deciding that they don't need one another. Paul wants us to see that we are the most preposterous when we fail to see the indispensability of others. Even the weakest members of the body, likely referring to those internal organs that you can't see, are indispensable. This is something we all need to hear. We're all deathly afraid of being dispensable. The one thing I've heard from some of our older saints, which they just kind of grieve, is that they're no longer seen. They're no longer heard. We're all deathly afraid of being used and tossed aside. We are consistently concerned about whether we fit in, whether we're accepted. And so people hop around from church to church trying to fit in. If we're members of a local church, we are indispensable. And all other members are indispensable parts of, the li- of our lives, too. And they, too, are part of the body that God has put together to display the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ. The beauty of interdependence is grounded first in each member's indispensability. Secondly, we have the beauty of interdependence as gifts are used. Verse 27 and 28. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, pastors, teachers, then miracles, the gifts of healing, administering, and various kinds of tongues. God has appointed In the same way God has composed the body for interdependence, he's also appointed grace gifts that are intended to be used for our mutual care. In the same way, they're used, each member of our own body contributes its unique gift to the rest of the body as it carries out its particular role. Every Christian is intended to participate in the culture of mutual care for the body of Christ. In these ways, we see the beauty of interdependence. It's important that we see it that way. Third, we see the ministry of mutual care being carried out in the body of Christ. Verse 25 and 26 tell us that there may be no division in the body, but that the members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If church members are organically interdependent upon one another, they experience the joys and pains of the body as a unit. If our hand is crushed in a tragic accident, our entire body experiences the pain. 
Furthermore, if the hand is permanently damaged, as the entire body will now continue to struggle as it works to make up for the loss of the hand. And if our hand were, God forbid, to be cut off from our body, we would experience permanent loss. Not to mention the fact that our hand itself would die in isolation from the rest of the body. In the same way, when the hand is functioning normally, the entire body enjoys the benefits of a healthy hand. Similarly, if a hand were to go rogue and decide it no longer wanted to serve within the body for one reason or another, it would bring him great harm to the entire body. It would be a denial of their interdependence. You know, we rarely see churches acting this way, don't we? When we're really honest with ourselves. See, if we saw churches acting like this, it would be so compelling, the churches would be packed. So refreshingly countercultural. We wouldn't be able to keep people away. So why is it this way? Well, I would suggest first, there's a lack of interdependence because... We view others as one. They are, indispe- they are dispensable. One of our worst fears is to be considered dispensable, disposable, replaceable. And ironically, the way people attempt to guard against this is to inflate their view of themselves and deflate views of others. Inflate saying, I am indispensable, and deflate others by saying, you are dispensable. They deflate others. It's a consumer, transactional way of relating to people that we do in business. People do this in an attempt to insulate themselves, but what they do is end up isolating themselves. It creates a culture where others are commodities to be used. Community itself becomes just that. They view others as dispensable, because they fail to recognize the necessity of diversity. Look at verse 29 and 30. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The grammar of the passage indicates that the answer to all these questions is an absolute no. The church is incomplete unless its members operate by being interdependent. God has given various gift sets to individuals in the church. Some have prophetic gifts, apostles, prophets, teachers. Others have priestly gifts, miracles, healings, kingly gifts, helping, administrating. Literally in the Greek, it's administrating is piloting. Showing us how to get things done. God has given every member of these spiritual gifts, but he's not given any individual all these spiritual gifts. Even if one's gifts are those that are more readily visible, such as preaching and teaching, for example. We're incomplete without the gifts of others. We're incomplete in and of ourselves. In other words, if we look at all the gift mixes, We need prophetic types, we need priestly types, and we need kingly types. In addition, there's a negative side to all these gifts, because people that are prone to preaching and teaching also are prone to being impatient with others. 
and it takes them away from being pastoral and relational. Others that are very priestly and pastoral and shepherd people well, but they're inefficient in the way they organize things. Certain members are kingly, and they can get things done all right by being very efficient with their time and all the resources they have, but they abandon the people in the process because they just, they, just, they just want to do it themselves and get the job done right. There are potential negative sides to the different gift mixes that God's people possess. So it's important to the extent that there's a failure to see the necessity of the diversity of gifts in the body, to that extent, others will be viewed as dispensable. And God's compositional design for humanity will be missed. So, when God's compositional design is missed, there's nothing left but self-composition. That's the word he uses here. It's self-composition because there's a lack of interdependence because members are more interested in self-composition We'll do it our way. It really should have been titled Paul's first letter to the Americans. Rather than seeing that God is the composer of the body and the appointer of the gifts, the Corinthians viewed themselves as composers and believed that they could attain skills and competencies through their hard work. Similarly, believers today believe their identity can be built on their own and they will need to protect it and keep it others at arm's length by insulating themselves from the interdependency of the community. Therefore, they do isolate themselves and will fail to be recipients of the grace of God through other brothers and sisters. We can end up placing ourselves in a position where we're unable to recognize the beauty of God's communal composition recognizing that the weakest among us are those who are absolutely indispensable and worthy of honor. That's the first reason why I think this happens. We view others as dispensable. The second reason there's a lack of interdependence in the church is because of self-care, I call it. Self-protection. We're unable to fulfill the role in the body of mutual care. Because when you're in the body of mutual care, you're called to suffer when others suffer. You weep when they weep. You rejoice when they rejoice. But sharing in the suffering of others is costly. So they become rebellious body parts. And in the process, they lose their identity as body parts of the Christian church. Hands cease to function as hands. And they ultimately cannot share in the rejoicing of others. Their grace gifts become an occasion for competition. If an individual is all about self-care rather than mutual care, their gifts become a means of distinguishing themselves from others and advancing themselves rather than advancing the interest of others. So in these ways, the church often becomes a mirror of the surrounding culture and it looks absolutely no different from the world. Remember last week in Acts 2, the church was attractively different. Learning, loving, worshiping, praying. We have to honestly ask ourselves if we reflect the culture in this way. In valuing the intellect, has there been an undervaluing of the heart or vice versa? 
In valuing excellence, has there been an undervaluing of simplicity? Have the spiritual gifts of some members been overlooked because we overvalue the grace of others? Have we viewed people in our little churches as dispensable? Have we become more interested in self-composition and doing the Christian faith our way and lost sight of God's composition? Are we more concerned with self-care than mutual care? The answer to many of these questions among us this morning is likely to be yes on one level or the other. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, is there any hope of Christ church being transformed to reflect the beautiful interdependence that God intends for us? Absolutely. We can recover our interdependence. Complementary interdependence can be recovered first because Christ could have viewed sinners as dispensable. But in his grace, he saw sinners as indispensable. In fact, he became dispensable in their place. The imagery of the body is not generic. It's very specific. It is the body of Christ. The health, well-being, and future of the body are in the hands of the head of the body of Christ, who is Jesus Christ himself. Individual sinners have been incorporated into his body by his grace. No one has earned their way into the body of Christ. He did it for us. Even if we have falsely determined that we are dispensable, the head of the body has declared that we are not. The most presentable part, the head, was willingly dishonored. A death upon the cross so that the least presentable parts of the body, that's us, might receive honor. The strongest member was made weak and dispensable in order that the weaker members, you and I, might be considered indispensable. That love transforms our reality. Christians need to recognize that they're utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ and the community in which he has placed them. We are utterly dependent upon one another. And when they realize that they are dispensable, that they are able to receive the grace that tells them that they are indispensable. I'm dispensable. He says, no, you're not. You're indispensable. I died for you and for you and the world. Secondly, interdependence can be recovered because Christ saves sinners from the myth of self-composition. We are God's composition, and he has made us a part of his body. Being in a dating relationship can create an exhausting experience of self-promotion similar to marketing one's goods. You remember that when you were first dating your spouse? The need to always be on, always to impress continually because we don't want her to be scared away by the real me. So you're never at rest because you're not quite sure exactly how the person views you, sees you, evaluates you. So you're, you want to be fully aware, want to make the right decisions. You want to make sure that I'm bringing my best to the table always. It's exhausting. 
In other words, people are involved in consumer relationships and thus are always insecure and a little bit nervous. But Christians have been united to Jesus Christ's body by his grace. We're free to abandon all attempts of self-composition, of self-creation, of doing it our way. Members do not need to distinguish themselves or compete for a higher position because their body, their position in the body of Christ has been secured by Jesus himself. They can rest in the fact that their identity is given to them by Jesus Christ and is affirmed within the community. Every single one of us count in matter. Interdependence can be restored because Jesus Christ cares for sinners by making them interdependent members of his body. We mutually care for one another because we've experienced his care. Christ completely eschewed self-protection and self-care in order to care for us. The ultimate work of another makes every Christian ultimately concerned about others. Anyone who's experienced the self-giving love of another, capital A, the ultimate gift of grace, can use grace gifts as a conduit to express that same self-giving love to others here and outside these walls. I kind of liken it to the Chicago Bulls. 1984, 21-year-old Michael Jordan got drafted out of the University of North Carolina to play for a really bad basketball team. They were bad. And you know, Michael couldn't do it all by himself until they drafted Scottie Pippen, Steve Kerr, Dennis Rodman. Crazy man that he is, but he was good. <laughs> and it came together. And they ran the table. I remember my player, I'm hitting ground balls in March, and it's freezing cold outside, and the kids are saying to me, Coach, you going to the game tonight? I go, did you get a ticket? How can you get a ticket to see Michael play? You went to see Michael. At the end of the game, who got the ball? Michael. But he couldn't do it by himself. That's the picture of the body of Christ, my friends. We need one another. Every single one of us matter. We are gathered on Sundays to be scattered to the West Shore community. But even in our Sunday gatherings, we need help. As we're moving into our new building over the next few months, we are going to need, we thank God for our horns. It's great to have them. Some of you guys can also play instruments. It'd be great to have a djembe player. It'd be great to have other musical gifts. We're going to have singers come along and lead us during the communion time again. We need help in the nursery. Since COVID, Sarah's been doing it herself with her family. We need help down there. Kim needs help with Kid Kat. Um, not only just the leaders, but also aides. So we're changing the structure for the aides. You can just serve one week. We're going to be sending out an email do you sign up, Jesus? Just, just sign up to help the leader once, once in the month, once every other month. Just sign up for the open dates. There's, there's a place for everybody here. We have needs. And quite frankly, they're glaring. People say, well, 
you know the Pareto principle? It's always 20% of the people do 80% of the ministry. Is that what Paul says? Is that what Paul says? No. All God's children got a place in the choir. All right? All of us. Because we're the body of Christ. The famous chaplain of the Senate, Dick Halverson, he was the pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. Abraham Lincoln went to Fourth Presbyterian. It's a cool place. Peter Marshall in the 50s was pastor of Fourth Presbyterian. It was a place of great faith, great preaching to the politics of Washington. It was really pretty a cool, cool place. Dick was flying at night back in the National Airport, and spotlights were on the steeple of Fourth Presbyterian. So he's looking out the window from Fourth Presbyterian. Where's my church? And he couldn't see it. He could see the Pentagon. He could see the Capitol. He could see the Commerce Department. He could see the White House. He could see the Marine Corps Memorial. Couldn't see Fourth Presbyterian. Then it dawned on him. He knew in his congregation people who worked in the Pentagon, on Capitol Hill, in the White House. He knew Marines. He knew people who worked in Congress. Fourth Presbyterian was scattered all other, over Washington, D.C. as the body of Christ, each using their gifts, both in the church and as they're scattered around Washington. That's the church. It's not a building. We all got a place in the choir. Some sing lower. Some sing higher. Some sing out loud on the telephone wire. Some just clap their hands off beat like white people. (laughs) We all got a place. Let's live into that as we go over the next few years, and God will be glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful so much for this word, which Paul reminds us that every one of us matter. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So we pray that our little churches would flourish this fall. It's never too late to get plugged in. And we just pray, Lord, that you would do a wonderful work in each and every one of us. So that we, O oh Lord, would be a functioning body and day by day you would add to the number for your glory. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.